the Sunday we officially celebrate or commemorate 49 days until Christmas. And here in the Philippines, you know, we have the longest Christmas season in the world. I have been hearing Christmas music in the mall since September the 1st. Now, what makes Christmas such a wonderful and special time of the year? Well, I googled the top things that make Christmas so wonderful to see the perspective of the world, to see what is the pulse of what the world thinks makes Christmas so special. And I came across Belinda Moreira's article of top 25 greatest things about Christmas. Now, Belinda is just like you and me. She's a 10th grade teacher serving in the D.C. area. And as I looked through her list of 25 greatest things about Christmas... I could identify with most all of them. Number one on her list that makes Christmas so special is the Christmas tree. And she writes, there's nothing more exciting than going to pick out a tree and gathering around with people you love to add lights and ornaments. It brightens up anyone's day. Number three on her list is lights. Walking around and seeing all the pretty lights, she writes, can make anyone smile. Everything just glistens more during the Christmas season. Number four on her list is vacation time. Whether you're a student anticipating winter break or in the real world waiting for some time off, vacation that comes with the Christmas holidays is always welcome. That is what makes Christmas so wonderful. Number seven on her list is Christmas parties. There are so many parties during the season. Everyone wants an excuse to party, to stand under the mistletoe, to drink spike eggnogs, to spread the cheer. And we all love Christmas parties, especially here in the Philippines. Number nine on her list is presents. The holidays shouldn't be about the presents, she writes, but we all secretly love getting them. How can anyone not look forward to unwrapping a gift and being surprised? And I'm sure if you were to read her 25 greatest things about Christmas, you would agree with everything on her list with the exception of maybe number two, which is the chance of snow because it doesn't snow here. Although I know many of you who travel during the Christmas season just to go to North, uh, to Korea or Japan or China just to see snow. But it's interesting that if you look through her list of 25 greatest things about Christmas, there's nothing about Christ. There's nothing for the reason for why we even have Christmas enumerated in a list of the 25 greatest things about Christmas. But you can say, you know, Pastor, this is written from someone who's not a believer. Okay, that's fair enough. So if I were to ask you this morning, list for me the top five elements of Christmas, or I were to ask a Sunday school student, list for me, tell me what are the five greatest elements of the Christmas story, what do you think the response would be? Well, for sure the star. The star has to be there. Uh, the shepherds, we got to have shepherds at Christmas. The wise men, we love the wise men because it was the wise men that allowed us to have this gift-giving practice. Manger, we got to have a manger. Bethlehem, so crucial to the Christmas story. And of course, we would never forget Mary and baby Jesus. They have to be mentioned. You know, but it's interesting when you read the four gospel writers. And the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are those who write about the life of Jesus Christ. Most of the things that we just mentioned, or that you would mention as the top five or six most essential elements of the Christmas story, do not make it into their top five 
most mentioned elements in the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's interesting to note that in the four Gospels' writings, only one writer mentions shepherd. Can you imagine that? Three others do not even mention shepherds. What would we do without shepherds? Only two of the gospel writers mention angels. We love angels. Angels are in every aspect of the Christmas story, and yet only two out of the four gospel writers mention angels. Only one mentioned wise men. Only two mentioned Bethlehem. Now, why didn't all the gospel writers mention all of these elements? Now, they're very important, even if it's mentioned once under the inspiration of the Bible. They are important. But these are secondary elements to what is the most important part about Christmas. What makes Christmas so special is because of the greatness of what we call the Incarnation. And the incarnation is a very big theological word that simply means God takes on human form. The greatness of Christmas is in the incarnation where the heavenly father sends his son, Jesus Christ, God himself, to take on human form. The incarnation is the revelation of who God is to mankind. And so in this new series we're going to start this morning, we want to talk about the birth narratives, the birth story of Jesus Christ, and what it reveals about God. Because the Christmas story is more than about the mangers. It's more than about the shepherds. It's more than about the angels. In fact, it's more than about the fact that there's no room in the inn. It is about the incarnation where God reveals himself to mankind in human form. It is the revelation of who God is. So what does God reveal about himself in the birth of Christ? That's what we want to take a look at in this series. And so we're going to take a look at the most complete birth narrative account, which is the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 1, as we exposit verse 5 to 25. Luke chapter 1, the third Gospel, chapter 1, verse 5 to 25. Luke, the physician, writes a very complete gospel, a very complete life of Christ account. He has done the research, and so he is going to begin the life of Christ and tell about the birth of Jesus. And how does he begin the story? He begins the story of Jesus' birth with a man named Zechariah. You may be asking, who in the world is he? I've never heard the name Zechariah when we talk about the Christmas story. Well, guess what? It's in the Bible. And the great writer Luke begins the birth narratives of Jesus with a man by the name of Zechariah. Why? Well, let's see. Look at me, verse 5 and verse 6. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord. Would you notice that word? Blameless. It has been 400 years since God spoke and revealed himself to mankind. 
Because of mankind's sin, God did not reveal himself in, a, in any special way. Now, it didn't mean that God wasn't at work in this world. It just meant that he didn't reveal himself between the book of Malachi and the book of Matthew. We call this the intertestamental time, 400 years when God was silent. The book of Ezekiel gives us a clue. Why? Because of Israel's sin, the Bible tells us God's presence left the temple more than 400 years back. God was very reluctant to leave. But God's holiness could have nothing to do with the sins of mankind. And so as sin was brought into the temple, into the very holy of holies, God says, I can't stay here anymore. This place is defiled. Mankind wishes to pursue in their sinful actions. And so God reluctantly leaves the temple. His earthly presence was no longer here. Now, one would think that when God is silent for 400 years, that there would be no more righteous people living in this world, much less in Israel. But we find out in Luke chapter 1 that there is a faithful couple who strove to live a holy life in an unholy world. A couple that strove, that desired to live a holy life in an unholy world. That's kind of like how we live this life. We are called in the scriptures, in the Bible, to live a holy life in the midst of an unholy world. And this couple was named Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, it's interesting that Zechariah is a priest. And the word Zechariah, his name means the Lord remembers. The Lord remembers. And interestingly enough, he marries Elizabeth, whose name means covenant or promise of God. Now, when you put their names together, this husband and wife couple team. Their couple team name means God remembers his promises. Oh, there's Zechariah and Elizabeth, and he should stir in the minds of the people who call out Zechariah and Elizabeth the truth that God remembers his promises. But if you look at their life, it doesn't seem like God remembered any promise. It looked like God had forgotten faithful people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. How do I know this? Look at verse 7. And the Bible says, And they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were well advanced in years. Now you would think that God would bless faithful people because God had revealed. That's how he operated. All throughout the Old Testament, God had said, if you live a faithful life, if you walk in obedience, I will bless you. If you walk in disobedience, I will discipline you. I will curse you. That was how God operated. And in that cultural time, the greatest display of God's blessings in your family's life was the blessings of children. And so if you had lots of children, it signified in that cultural time that God's blessings was upon you. But if you had no children in that cultural time, it meant that God's hand of blessing, they thought, was not on them. And yet for such a faithful couple, the Bible says they were without child. For a couple whose name means God remembers his promises, it doesn't seem like God remembered them at all. And the Bible said, not only they had no children, but they would have no hope for ever having children. Why? Verse 7. They were well past 
childbearing age. Their life represents the question we all ask of God at some point in our lives. We ask the question, does God remember us? Does God remember his promises? And what we're going to find out in a very clear way is that God is a God who does not forget. He doesn't forget his promises even after 400 years to the nation of Israel. He does not forget his promises to the world. He does not forget his promises to this couple. And he will show here as we begin Luke's birth narrative account of Jesus Christ, one of the greatest revelation of who God is. And in the birth narratives, God reveals that he is a God who remembers his promises. God is a God who remembers his promises. Now, what truth do we know about his promises? There are three biblical principles I'd like you to know about God's promises. Verse 8 and 9. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. In verse 8 and 9, we are told that it was Zacharias' turn to offer up the incense sacrifice. Now, you have to understand why this is so. In a time of great moral ambiguity, there was an oversupply of priests. There's an oversupply of priests. There are too many of them. And this was a very godless time. And so, being of the tribe of Levi, Zechariah took his turn to fulfill his priestly duty. It was a real honor to be selected to do what he was about to do, to burn incense in the holy place. In fact, the Bible tells us that it was so special that most priests would only do this once in their lifetime. So this was his moment. He had been waiting all of his life to fulfill his priestly duty to burn incense in the holy place. Look what happens, verse 10 to 12. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. There he is, going about his priestly duty. Suddenly an angel appears to him. And the Bible tells us he's very afraid. You have to understand, for 400 years, this has never happened. And I'm sure you too would be very afraid if suddenly a supernatural being appears. But look what the angel says in verse 13 and 14. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Now, when you read those verses, you may think, wow, Zacharias and Elizabeth are really men and women of faith. They are past their childbearing age. Now, we don't know how old they are. The Bible doesn't tell us. Past childbearing age, 50, 60, 70 years old. They're 70 years old. They're still praying for a child. Now, I want to ask in our congregation this morning, any 70-year-olds praying for another child? Any 60-year-old praying for another child? Because if you are, please let me know. I want to pray with you. I want a modern-day miracle to, to happen also. 
Anyone? No, no, probably no one. No, no, no 50 year old, 60 year old, 70 year old is praying for a child. I can venture to guess. And here the Bible tells us the angel says to Zechariah in the present tense, for your prayer is heard. Was Zechariah and Elizabeth praying for a child? I don't believe so. I believe this was a prayer that they had offered up to God when they were younger, maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago, when they got married at a young age, which, which was the custom then. Year after year, they prayed. But it didn't seem that God remembered them. All their friends got married, and they were all of childbearing age, and couple after couple after couple kept having children, not one, two, three, four, five, six, big families, and they couldn't even have one. It must have been very disappointing for them. They had perhaps given up hope. Their prayers were unanswered. And then in his older age, Zachariah goes, performs the priestly functions, and he hears from the angel, your prayers are heard. Your prayer is heard in the present tense. That him and his wife would have a son and they would call his name John, which means God is gracious. And this birth will bring into their life joy and gladness and others will celebrate with you. I love the truth that this incident reveals. God hears all of our prayers. From the smallest children to the oldest person. From the simplest prayer to the most eloquent. Don't you ever think that somehow that your prayer is unheard, forgotten, or overlooked. God hears it. And when he decides to act on your prayer in accordance with his will, it is as if that prayer is very presently given. This prayer that Zacharias and Elizabeth gives perhaps 30, 40 years ago, God says, now it is time. I've heard your prayer. Our prayers resonate in the heavenly throne. And the Bible tells us in verse 14, his answering brings with it joy. Joy and gladness, verse 14 tells us. You know those words? Of course you do. They're often repeated during Christmas. Joy and gladness, that is the running theme that echoes throughout the Christmas story. There is joy, there is gladness. You see, what I want you to know, number one, about God's promises, is that number one, God's promises bring joy. God's promises always bring joy. What promises does God give us that bring us sadness? If you want to look for joy in this season, if you're looking for joy in this life, you look for joy in God's promises. And there are so many of them throughout the scriptures. This is a world that's looking for joy in the wrong places, in the temporary satisfaction of lust and of the world. And yet the Bible tells us it is in God's promises that we find joy. What promises of God bring you sadness. I don't see people go around and saying, you know what? God promised to protect me. I'm just so sad about that. Or people say, God, you promise always to be with me, never to leave me nor, nor to forsake me. That's terrible. You know, as parents, when you promise your children something, what do you promise them? 
You promise them things that will bring them joy. You tell your children, I promise you the most amazing Christmas gift this year. It will be what you've always wanted, right? Or we tell them, I promise that this meal is going to be the most amazing meal, a wonderful meal. Or we promise them, as a parent to a child, I promise I'll give you a great education. I will take care of you. Horror the thought Horrible the parent who says to their child, I promise you, you will have the most terrible gift this year. You like that? I hope parents would never say that. I hope parents would never say to their children, I promise you that you will have the most miserable life in the world. Although I know teenagers think that that is what their parents want for their life. Parents don't do that. When parents make promises to their children, it is conditioned upon bringing them joy. So also our Heavenly Father, when He brings promises to His children, His promises bring joy. Because intrinsic to the very nature of promises is joy. And so God's promises are to be viewed through the lenses of celebration and joy. You see, this faithful couple is given a promise of the blessing of a child. It would bring them joy. The world will be given the promise of a Savior. In that, the world is brought joy. Both promises bring joy. This is one of the greatest thematic revelation of the birth story of Jesus Christ, that God remembers His promises and that His promises bring joy. The second truth of God's promises, look at verse 15 to 17. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Note this. To make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The angel reveals to Zechariah that his future son John would be unique. John would have a very special spiritual earthly mission in life, and that would be to make ready a people for the coming Messiah. And to fulfill this very special purpose, the Bible tells us John would be filled with the Holy Spirit even before birth. And he would have the unique ability to change the hearts of the people. This John, who we know as John the Baptist, would be in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that says that there would be a forerunner, someone who comes before Christ, and therefore his coming confirms the truth of the coming Messiah. You see, what the angel says to Zechariah reveals another truth about God's promises, number two. God's promises always fulfill a purpose. God's promises fulfill a purpose. The promise of John was the promise to fulfill a purpose, and that purpose was to make ready a people for the Messiah. From the Abrahamic promise to the Davidic covenant to the new covenant, God's promises always fulfill a purpose. And so if he promises something to you and me in the scriptures, then it fulfills a purpose in our lives. Do we claim that promise? Do God's promises 
fulfill a purpose in our life? Does it change the way we live? Now, why do I mention this truth? I mention this truth because nowadays promises are a dime a dozen. We make promises we don't intend to keep. We make promises flippantly. We say, oh, I promise to be your friend until I don't want to be your friend anymore. I promise my spouse to be faithfully married to them until I find someone more beautiful. Promises are cheap today. But you've got to understand the truth that when God makes a promise, it is to fulfill a purpose, a very unique purpose, and he will hold to it. Like the promise of no more worldwide flood with the purpose to show his patience or his unconditional promise to Abraham, which shows that he is a God who is faithful. And as he is faithful to Abraham, he is also faithful to us. Or the promise for us of eternal life, which shows forth his unconditional love for us. His promise to us of always being with us and never forsaking us shows us his protection. Remember, God's promises fulfill a purpose in our life. It is with the purpose to encourage us, to lift us up, to challenge us to live an emboldened life. So my friends, study the promises of God. This is a God who reveals himself as the God who remembers his promises. And in the promises of God, we depend for our confidence in him. Thousands of promises in the Bible, each one serving and fulfilling a purpose. Like when he says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God is promising to those who are tired, rest. That is the purpose of this promise. The purpose to tell all those who are emotionally and spiritually and physically tired, I promise you rest. Or when he says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the purpose by which God gives the promise to tell us that he cleanses us. He gives us another chance. And so those who have messed up in this life, those who have made a mistake in sin, his promise comes with a purpose to tell us we can start over again. We have the privilege of a renewed life. Or he tells us in Psalm 84, verse 11, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk unrightly. This is a promise with a purpose to remind us of God's goodness. That when God gives, and what he gives, in whatever quantity, it always is for our good. We do not question why God does not give us this or that. But what God has given us, it comes from a God of goodness. But when the Lord says in 1 Samuel 12, verse 22, the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake. It reminds us with the purpose that God shows forth his faithfulness. He will not leave us because his name is at stake. And because his name is at stake, when we are called his children, he will always be faithful to us. Psalm 25, verse 9, the meek will he guide. And that is a promise with a purpose that tells all of us who humble ourselves that God is a God who will guide us. He will never let us by ourselves, leave us by ourselves to fend for ourselves. He guides those who humble the hearts. 
Or Romans 8.28, the promise that all things work together for good to them that love God. It is a reminder, a promise with a purpose that God's wise plan is in effect even if we do not understand what God is doing. Even if we don't like what God is doing, we question why God is doing what He is doing. It is a promise that should elicit in us a renewed, emboldened self to say, No, God, you are wise in all that you do. All things work together for good to them that love God. And we can go on and on. And you don't want me to go on and on. And that's fine. I want you to look into the scriptures and search out the thousands of promises that fulfill a purpose for your life. Verse 18. And Zacharias said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. When Zechariah heard these words from the angel, he asked the question many of us would ask if we were in his shoes. How does this work? I'm an old man, angel. And my wife, she's old as well. You know, I love it if you read carefully verse 18. I love it that even in biblical times, a man knows you never call a woman old. I am an old man. My wife, advanced in years. There you go. You'll be looking for another word for old. Advanced in years. Loosely translated, she's old as well. How can this promise from God come true if it is impossible? Zechariah is thinking, how does this work biologically? Things don't work anymore. And the angel in verse 19, will reveal the answer to his question. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. Hey, Gabriel, I'm not some sort of ordinary angel, mind you. He says, I am Gabriel, the great messenger of God. Now, Zechariah was a priest, if you remember. And as a priest, for sure, he would know the Old Testament. And if he knows the Old Testament, he would know that in the book of Daniel, when God is bringing very important messages to his great prophet Daniel, who does he use? He uses the angel Gabriel. I am Gabriel. I'm the one that God uses to send very important messages. Look what he says. I stand in the presence of God. What is Gabriel saying? He's saying that this promise doesn't come because I made it up. This is a promise that came directly from God. I stand in His presence and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. The God who makes these promises is the God who is able to fulfill them. And that's the third truth about God's promises, number three. God's promises are fulfilled based on who He is. God's promises are fulfilled based on who He is. This is not some sort of ordinary promise made by human beings who can't even fulfill them completely. This is made by the sovereign, omnipotent one who can do the impossible, who can make this happen without IVF, who can make this happen without surrogacy. This is the God who can make His promises 
come to fulfillment based simply because He is God. My friends, understand this truth. God's promises don't need others to make it happen. Its foundations and fulfillment is solely based on who He is and what He can do. And this is an important truth you and I have to understand. This Thursday is one of my son's birthday. And if I were to come to him this Thursday and say, Son, I promise to buy you the new limited edition gold-plated Porsche owned by LeBron James. That is my promise to you. Does that promise carry any weight? Of course not. Number one, I don't have the money and I never will to ever buy a Porsche. Number two, the Porsche doesn't even come in a gold-plated edition. Number three, I don't know if LeBron even owns a Porsche. I don't know LeBron. He doesn't know me. And I'm sure if I asked LeBron if I can buy his car, he would not sell it to me. And so my promise, if I gave that to my son on Thursday, is as good as dead. Even if I say it with such enthusiasm. Why? Because these are all factors outside of my control. But in every promise in the Bible, it is the sovereign one who alone can make all things happen to ensure that it will come to fulfillment. Look through history. Look through the scriptures. Every promise that God has made has and will come to fruition. For example, he promised the nation Israel that they would be part of end-time history. And yet, all the skeptics said, the Bible can't be true. Because in 70 AD, under General Titus, he pretty much destroyed and wiped out Jerusalem. Scattered the people. There was no longer a Jewish homeland. And yet, almost 2,000 years later, in 1948, never before in the history of any culture, of any civilization that had died, God brought back the nation Israel. Because He promised it. And He promised it in the book of Romans, chapter 9 and chapter 10 and chapter 11. When God promises something, it doesn't matter. There is no time expiration to it. There is no time limit to what God can do. When God promises it, it will come to fulfillment because it is based on who He is. He is the sovereign, omnipotent one. Now, to show further that God can do what He said He promises, He causes Zechariah not to be able to speak temporarily until his son is born. Look at verse 20 to 22. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own times. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. Because of his unbelief, Zacharias was not able to speak. The people wondered, how come he took so long in there? And when he came out, he was to pronounce 
the ironic blessing of Numbers chapter 6. Lord bless you and keep you. Lord make his face to shine upon you. But he couldn't because he could not speak. And everyone was wondering, what's happening? And the Bible tells us in verse 22, he begins to play charades. You know, how do you, imagine, how would you act this out? If we were to play charades and I gave you as a clue, act out, Gabriel telling Zachariah he would have John. All, all of us would motion angel, you know, wings. No wings. This angel has no wings. By the way, you should understand that not all angels have wings. All right? This is angelology 101. No wings. How in the world do you describe this playing charades, right? Baby. You know, people are like, you're old, right? Yours? No. Right? There, you can do as many baby actions as you can. They have no idea what you're talking about. You point to your wife. They wouldn't assume it's her baby. She is advanced in years. They are confused. That's what the Bible says. They perceived that he had seen a vision, for he beckoned to them and, and remained speechless. Now, why do I mention this part? You see? Like the shepherds, remember? In Luke chapter 2. If you are wondering what happened in the holy place, you would follow along. Think about this. You would follow along. What in the world is happening to Zechariah and Elizabeth? And you will find that these people who are gathered will trace what has happened to Elizabeth and Zechariah until they give birth. And the Bible says in the promise, and many will rejoice. And they will understand that this child is a special child. And they will watch. And they will hear what he says. And that is important. Why? Because he's the forerunner. What will he say? Prepare your hearts. The Messiah is coming. If he came out, went to his house, no one cared, no one would care about Zachariah's son. And when John the Baptist came on board, who's this guy, some crazy man, yelling from the wilderness? And yet they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. So now they were all interested. I love how God works. Verse 23. So it was as soon as the days of his service were completed that he departed to his own house. Zechariah finished his priestly duties and his rotation, and he and Elizabeth went back home. Verse 24 and 25. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. We find out that God's promise to this couple was fulfilled. We find out that Elizabeth is with child and she remains in seclusion for five months. Now, we're never told why she has to remain in seclusion, but that doesn't matter. What matters is what she says at the end of verse 25. The Lord has taken away my reproach. What does the word reproach mean? The word reproach means embarrassment. God has taken away my embarrassment. God has taken away my criticism. Reproach means to criticize. Perhaps this faithful couple, you go back 
earlier in the chapter, they were blameless, that their friends came along and said, hey, why are you living your life for Jesus? Excuse me. Why are you living your life for the Lord? He hasn't blessed you. Kind of like Job's friends. Why are you living a holy life in an unholy world? You have no child. And so they began to make fun of them, make fun of her, criticize, and she was embarrassed. And that kind of mimics the embarrassment we feel sometimes. When the world tells us, well, there you go. You go to church every Sunday. Your business doesn't seem to be doing any better. There you are, reading the Bible, faithfully going to Bible study. You don't seem to be succeeding in life. And so we feel embarrassed and we feel the reproach. But when we remember that God reveals himself as the God who remembers his promises, we can say, as Elizabeth says, thus the Lord has dealt with me. How the Lord deals with me when he looks upon me, he takes away my reproach among people. You see, the God who remembers his promises will see to it that he fulfills every single promise he has made to us from the scripture, whether in this life or in the next. And in this life, you may never have that criticism taken away, but it's okay because one day the Bible says every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when that day happens, all those people who made fun of you for coming to church, for coming and trying to live your life holy and with purity, they will understand that they were wrong. Not because we had to try to twist their arms and convince them of this truth, but because they will bow before the Savior and they will acknowledge the one that they have rejected and they will acknowledge Him as King of King and Lord of Lord. It is on that day, if not earlier, that you can say, my reproach has been taken away. So my friends, be encouraged. This is the greatness of the revelation in his incarnation. He reveals to us that he is a God who remembers his promises. For Elizabeth and Zechariah, he provided them a child in fulfillment of his promise. So the question we pose at the very beginning, does God remember his promises? Absolutely yes. And that is what the birth narratives reveal about God. For Elizabeth and Zechariah, God fulfilled a promise for the birth of a child that they could not have. For us, it was the promise of a Savior given as early as Genesis 3 in the person of Jesus Christ who can save people who could not save themselves. There are approximately... 8,810 promises in the entire Bible. Are you standing on them? As that wonderful hymn reminds us, standing on the promises of God. Because the birth story of Jesus Christ begins as Luke wants us to know that he is a God who remembers his promises. Why? Why? Because his promises are based on who he is. It is not dependent on anyone else. 
His promises have a purpose, and His promises purpose to bring us joy. If you are looking for joy in this season today, it comes in the person of Jesus Christ, the promised Son of God. And He came not to live but to die. That is His purpose. So that we may receive joy and gladness. That is where joy and gladness comes. The joy and gladness that makes this Christmas season so special is foundation on the promise of the Savior. I hope you will understand that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for the reminder through your word, I thank you. I thank you that we can see in these birth narratives the revelation of who you are. The revelation that you are a keeper of your promises. Thank you for that. Thank you. It's not only about the shepherds and the star and even the angels. Those are all secondary. It's about the revelation of who you are. And how you reveal your promise through your son, Jesus Christ. To take away the reproach of our hearts. May it be, Lord, this morning. that You would use your word. To embolden us to live this life for you. To lift, uplift our hearts with joy and gladness. Because you are a keeper of your promises. Help us not to doubt any of your goodness just because we don't see it now. Thank you that our prayers this morning go before the very throne room of grace. And there they are remembered forever until you answer them in your time. For the prayers many of us have this morning. We lay them before your feet. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.